This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is October 2nd, 2020, and we're talking with Shinyi Chow and Ernest Lai about their research examining how misinformation online has helped drive a decline in vaccination rates for measles, mumps, and rubella, or MMR, and what that might mean as a vaccine for coronavirus is developed. Dr. Chow holds the Arthur F. Searing Professorship and is the chair of the Department of Economics in Lehigh's College of Business. Her research focuses on health economics and applied econometrics. Dr. Chow also is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Dr. Lai is an associate professor who holds the Class of 61 Professorship in Economics. His research focuses on using the tools of game theory and laboratory experiments to study strategic communication. Dr. Lai teaches game theory at the undergraduate and graduate levels and is the director of the PhD program of the College of Business. Welcome to both of you. It's good to have you with us today. To get started, uh, as we were getting ready to record this, um, it was announced that President Trump and his wife Melania have tested positive for coronavirus. And the COVID-19 pandemic has really thrust the whole issue of vaccines uh, front and center in the news over recent months. To date, more than 200,000 people in the United States and more than a million worldwide have died as a result of the coronavirus. We've also seen a resurgence online and in the media from the anti-vaccine movement, a movement that was fueled by a 1998 study published in the British medical journal, The Lancet, that has since been thoroughly discredited by the editors of the journal itself, as well as the scientific community. So let's start by talking about the origin story of the modern-day anti-vaccine movement. Tell us about Andrew Wakefield and his role. First of all, I'm very happy to uh, join this uh, podcast and to talk about this very important uh, topic. So let's uh, start with uh, Andrew Wakefield's um, uh, publications in 1998. So uh, in 1998, uh, a very prestigious medical journal based in UK, The Lancet, published a paper led by Andrew Wakefield. So they um, studied 12 children and uh, they claimed that they found evidence of measles virus in their digestive systems that led to uh, bowel disease and autism. However, a substantial body of subsequent studies based on more rigorous research protocols and larger samples couldn't support such linkage. So in 2004, this paper was partially retracted, and in 2010, the paper was fully retracted. Although uh, Wakefield's study has been proven fraudulent, it filled fears about vaccine safety in UK, Europe, and the United States. And especially after the publication of uh, our paper, and even after the paper was uh, retracted, the public was uh, presented with conflicting messages ranging from celebrities' anti-vaccine uh, speeches to emotional stories from parents of uh, autistic children to assurances of uh, vaccine safety from authorities. So, you know, it's sort of um, mimicking uh, what we have seen today. 
What was it that uh, led the two of you, um, is, along with a former student as well, to begin looking at how it was that people formed their views about vaccines and what affected them? So Ernie, you want me to talk about it? Yeah. Okay. So, Hi. By the way, I'm, I'm very happy to join the, the interview today. Uh, uh, yeah, I will let Xinyi, because this, this was initiated by Xinyi and uh, her student, right? And I joined the project at a later point. Uh, so uh, I will let you to talk about how you guys start looking at this problem. And then maybe I would talk a bit about uh, my contributions. Okay. okay. Sounds good. So initially, I was actually interested in understanding the increasing numbers of autistic children at that time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was, uh, I remember I was a participant at a research forum on this particular topic 15 years ago, um, hosted uh, you know, at Lehigh University. The forum was open to the public. So there were, you know, a lot of uh, parents who had uh, autistic kids um, joined the forum. During the Q&A, uh, I remember clearly some parents got very emotional and insist insisted the causal relationship between vaccine and autism. So that got me, um, you know, uh, into this uh, topic and uh, read more about the about this controversy. So my former students, Meng Chen, Qian, started examining the uh, MMR vaccine non-uptake non rate in the United States during her PhD study. So, um, we, you know, we got some plots and we were very puzzled by the increasing trend of MMR non-uptake rate in the U.S. after 2004. So essentially that was the year after, uh, that was the year uh, when the paper, when Wakefield paper was uh, partially retracted. So I'm a health economist. I'm always interested in how health behaviors are developed. So I talked to Ernest about this uh, puzzling, um, you know, sort of puzzling results. And Ernie is an experimental economist. You know, I remember he said right away, well, your story may be driven by confirmatory bias. So that <laughs> sounds very cool to me. Uh, so we started to conduct more in-depth analysis. So that's how we, um, you know, got together to study this uh, uh, very important topics. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I think one of the most important findings in the paper is the, the asymmetric uh, responses to uh, what we call the positive information and negative information about vaccine. And so uh, I think Xinyi and, and Mengchen was kind of puzzled by that um, findings. Right? And then uh, they come to me and they talk to me and they say, wow, this, yeah, this is pretty natural, right? From, from the perspective of complementary bias. And then, uh, yeah, and then I joined the project and uh, point out what's the literature. And then uh, I also built um, like a little theoretical model to connect, right? Because like confirmatory bias was a bias at the individual level, how that translate into our what we call aggregate observations uh, about the, the, the change in the vaccine rates or the response of the aggregate vaccine rates to different uh, type of information. So I try to build like a model to link, like a theoretical model to link the, the, the two, right? So that uh, we have like a robust formal framework to address the issues. And then uh, Xinyi and Mengchen was, uh, like solely responsible for the empirical parts, right? meaning to analyze the data to tease out such a uh, effect right? uh, uh, on the empirical fronts. Okay, if we can talk a little bit about, about um, confirmatory bias, uh, it's, it sounds 
pretty obvious, and I'm guessing um, that it, it means that when we're looking at information, we're looking for things especially that confirm the bias we start out with. Is, is that correct? Yes, yes. I think the idea traced back to actually Francis Bacon. Right? He, he had a quote uh, that uh, the human understanding, when it has once adopted an opinion, we draw all things to support and agree with it. Uh, I think this is probably the first uh, documentation. Right? I mean, well, it's, it was a claim right? at, that, at that time, and then uh, it was his observation. But then psychologists has uh, documented this in the laboratory. Right? Uh, and then uh, there are many forms of it. Uh, and one, one, one form is like, like basically just what the Francis Bacon's uh, quote is about. Right? Uh, once we form a position, form a beliefs, then we are kind of deaf. Uh, we, are, we are becoming deaf to new information, in particular those information that contrast uh, uh, our initial uh, beliefs, right? We will be selectively selecting information. We will selectively interpreting information that fits our uh, prior narratives. So I think that is the, the, the main idea of, of uh, complementary bias. And that has been documented by psychologists in the lab. And then in our study, uh, we document that in the context of health decisions, uh, using like what we call the real data, right? It's not uh, like the data was not obtained from the lab. Yet. Uh, so that is the, the like the con one of the contribution to the paper to me. And what kind of of, of data were you looking at? Um, I believe um, the study talked about news coverage, online information searches. Um, was this the attempt to correlate what kind of things people, what kind of information was out there, broadly online? And then correlating that with either a rise or a fall in the MMR vaccination rates. The primary uh, data is the National Immunization Survey. And we look at the uh, periods from 1988 to 2011. So we know um, the, the, the non-uptake rate, the MMR non-uptake rate uh, among the children surveyed. And in addition to this uh, main data, we also supplement our data with, um, with many other uh, measures. So we look at uh, uh, the role of three factors to facilitate our findings. So we look at the prevalence rates of uh, relevant diseases. Uh, we look at the counts of relevant coverage in local newspapers. So for newspapers, um, we, we actually manually, so Mengchen manually read through all the, paper, all the newspapers, news articles that are related to uh, MMR vaccine controversy uh, during, this time, during this time period and uh, count the number of relevant coverage. And uh, um, we, we are also interested in the intensities of relevant online searches. So for that one, we collect the data based on the Google trend. So all those are measured at the state level. And uh, um, our underlying pre-assumption is that the vaccination decisions of mothers with more frequent onsets of the diseases uh, or more relevant newspapers coverage or more intense online searches of related topics are more strongly affected. So at the end, uh, we find that online searches have stronger impact on the 
biases of college-educated mothers than does newspaper coverage and uh, disease outbreak. Uh, and we also find that the both positive and negative exposures of online searches have a significant effect, although the effect of negative exposures remains dominant. And what do you mean by positive or negative exposures? So uh, for the online search, so positive means that uh, uh, the information that uh, um, that the information that asserts that the vaccine is actually safe um, and uh, effective. So that's what we mean, the positive. So we went through the information and then we, we um, group the information to positive and the negative. Negative information means that uh, um, uh, the information asserts that the vaccine is not safe, is not, is not effective. Now, it seems kind of surprising at first blush that college-educated parents in particular would be the ones uh, most susceptible to negative information, false, inform you know, false information uh, about vaccines. And I was wondering if you could, could talk about why, why that would be. So I, I, I think, you know, I, I will start and uh, Ernie can join um, mm -hmm. you know, anytime. So I think um, more educated parents have ways to obtain information faster and form their own beliefs. And, uh, um, but, but when the information turns out to be erroneous, they will stick to the misinformation they believe in. So, you know, it, it shows us that the first perception, you know, when they form the beliefs, you know, it, it's, it's quite important, um, the information uh, that was uh, floating at that time. So we have to keep in mind that Wakefield's report was retracted 12 years after it was first published. So in our case, it would not be easy to change the belief formed during such a long time. So educated, uh, college educated moms, they obtain information faster and they form their own beliefs. And in 12 years, you know, they stick to this information. Uh, it turns out to be um, erroneous, right? So. Uh -huh. Um, so we find that exposures to negative information strengthen the biases of the college-educated mothers more than the exposures to positive information attenuated them. So it suggests that the effects of information linger when people amplifying um, when people amplify incoming information that confirms their erroneous beliefs. So once they form their beliefs, um, they just follow through and stick to the information. It's not so much about like the educated uh, groups or, or parents are more vulnerable to false information. It's just so happened uh, the information that they acquire, right? They are faster in acquiring information than the, the less educated, and right? they, uh, they are less savvy in collecting information. It's just so happened the first set of information that acquired was, was not accurate, was false. And then under the confirmatory bias that stick, then it translates into a, the outcome that um, they are more, more vulnerable to the false information. So there are two, two, two separate uh, concepts or, or issues here. Right? Mm -hmm. like they are better at absorbing information. And so happened the information that it absorbed initially was turned out to be wrong. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like we have to see this by combining the, the absorption of information by the more educated parents with confirmatory bias, and that explains the findings. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And I wonder, you know, the, 
the Lancet journal article was completely repudiated in 2010. And I know your um, initial research went through 2011. Uh, but I was looking, um, there's the Center for Countering Digital Hate Online, and they've just issued a new report, uh, I think within the last week, that the number of social media accounts held by anti-vaccine activists have increased by 7 to 8 million since just last year, 2019, and that there are 31 million people following anti-vaccine groups on Facebook with 17 million people subscribing to similar accounts on YouTube. So here we are now 10 years removed from that original, um, you know, false impression that people formed. And it still is growing um, by, you know, large numbers. How, how do you explain that continued growth? I don't have an explanation for that, but it is something that, seems to be consistent with one of our findings, which is like we find that the negative exposures to information has a stronger effect right, than the positive exposure. But if we restrict our sample to online information only, um, then it's like even the positive uh, exposure has a pretty uh, significant effect. Right? We don't see that for uh, among like the, the, the traditional media, like the paper, uh, paper media, like the newspaper. So uh, again, I don't have an answer for, what, for the growth, but like if you think of this as the battlefield, right? Then like this uh, anti-vaccines movement people, right? They, 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 they choose the right battlefield, right? Cause like this is the, like the online uh, arena is the, um, is the medium of information where like uh, a positive information uh, uh, regarding vaccine right, has has a, has an effect on 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 the on the uh, on the immunization decisions. So like if I want to uh, focus our resources on on uh, tackling the counter party, right? uh, like uh, the, the the advocations the advocacy of, uh, uh, of, of a vaccine, then it seems that the online platform is the, is the right battlefield, right? So I, I think like this is kind of like a rational uh, phenomenon, right? So they choose the right, right battlefield, right? So it's like that's the marginal return of tackling the, the other cam, right? Uh, through the traditional media is, is not that effective. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have much effect than, than, than the online platform, right? So that's my, my, my take, but I don't really have like a concrete explanation for, for the growth. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the point is that uh, um, nowadays people really um, turn to the online platform to gather information. So um, it's true that, uh, um, you know, more people follow the anti-vaccine, um, you know, groups. But uh, if we, you know, for other groups like pro-vaccine, you know, groups, you know, we, we probably will see the, the, the increased number as well, because it's just the trend uh, of how people obtain information. But it's also highlight the importance um, of, um, you know, controlling uh, and uh, regulating uh, the, 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 the correct, you know, the, the correct information uh, posted um, through the social medias. Yeah, I recently had read a report um, from CNN uh, talking to both officials at the CDC um, and looking at news coverage where, um, and, and, you know, people at the CDC were admitting that they have not 
done a good enough job of getting him information out there about the uh, you know coming coronavirus vaccine in particular, and that in in the absence of them having a public education campaign um, with what the facts are, that that void has been filled online by all kinds of um, false and even just you know pretty crazy information. Uh, ranging from, you know, the vaccines that part of a CIA plot to take over the world, that it's going to leave an invisible digital trackable tattoo on you, uh, that it will hideously disfigure your face. And maybe my personal favorite, that Dr. Anthony Fauci, the CDC's leading expert on infectious diseases and a leading vaccine advocate, is actually Satan. Um, how do you even begin to counter that kind of, um, you know, attack on um, scientific information and health information? Yeah, so, so I think, um, you know, it, it's really not easy. Um, but, but I think in the case of a COVID-19 vaccine, um, I think the scientific community needs to step up to scrutinize um, you know, for example, the clinical trials conducted to test the effectiveness of vaccines. So I think um, the studies need to be transparent. They need to, um, you know, publish the data so that the entire scientific community can uh, evaluate the, um, the rigorous, um, you know, whether the study is rigorous or not, and whether the, um, the public can um, trust um, their, their, their findings or not. Um, you know, if we look, looking back, if we look at the Wake, Wakefield studies, the Lancet is a very prestigious journal and every publications need to go through lengthy review process. But still, you know, we, you know I mean, they, make, they still made an error by publishing Wakefield's reports. Um, so, you know, I mean, coming back to the COVID-19 uh, vaccine um, case, Time is essence, you know. Here, so we all want to have it as soon as possible, but uh, um, we 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 really need to make sure that the public trust the vaccines. So the first information um, disseminated to the public is 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 crucial. You know, according to our study, uh, the first perception once planted is hard to eradicate. So. Um, and, and people are going to stick to the misinformation uh, and erroneous belief about the vaccines. So I think here, um, the health authorities at every level need to take a significant role in disseminating transparent information. I think that's, that's the key. Right, and I, I think we can see that there, uh, you know, another recent survey um, within the past weeks by the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, found that 62% of Americans are worried that, you know, a coronavirus vaccine is going to be rushed to approval without making sure it's safe and effective. So, you know, in, in terms of that first impression that people have, um, you know, 62% of the American people have now formed that opinion of, oh, when this thing comes out, you know, it's going to be rushed and it won't have been properly vetted. So it's going to be, you know, it may not be safe and effective. So that's, you know, you're starting from a deficit in, in, in terms of trying to rebuild trust among the public, you know, right from the beginning now, it sounds like. 
Yeah, and that's devastating. I think, like, given our findings, say, uh, right, you know, the the first impression really matter, right? If that was the 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 first impression that the the public get, right, then we can predict that like uh, they are fighting an uphill battle, right, to really promote uh, the safety of the vaccines. Um, yeah, I'm personally, I don't have a, a a solution for that, right, but I'm just pointing out that in the future or in, whenever there's any like uh, occasions, right, uh, the public officials or the scientists have to make sure that they convey the the the, the correct information, the accurate information. Otherwise, like the effect would be devastating, not because the information is wrong, but I mean, let's say the initial information is inaccurate or, or wrong, but like in addition to this lingering effect of the information, right, that like the, the whole entire uh, negative information would have a, a very uh, devastating effect that is hard to counter. So it's like we have to be careful about what is the information that was first being released to the public right, to ensure that they are they are proper and, and accurate. Yeah. Right. And it sounds like uh, that, you know, we're, we're all hoping it's uh, it is soon, um, you know, that, that, that there is a safe and effective vaccine that one of the keys to making this work would be to f- to make sure that there is a coherent public education campaign with a large online component, I take it from your research, mm-hmm. um, that you know really emphasizes the points that both you and Dr. Chow have made about transparency, safety, effectiveness. Um, you know, cost is probably a big one too for a lot of people. Um, but to make sure that that information is out there, that it's authoritative, that it's honest, it's complete, um, that it's not enough to just release the vaccine um, and expect people are going to be lining up to get it. Yes, it is well said. It's very well said. <laughs> and last question, I'm wondering, um, I know, you know, you're a health economist and, uh, you know, that research often has applications in broader ways as well. And I'm wondering, you know, particularly with this study, with all of the health decisions all of us face and the way everybody goes online now, um, you know, to kind of see what their options are, you know, what are kind of those broader health implications for the research you did with the, the vaccines? So I, I think uh, I think um, based on this paper, you know, if we're going to generalize to a you know broader um, um, health field, uh, the takeaway message is that the health in, health information uh, does matter. So a lot of people say that the health information does not change the behaviors, but uh, health information does affect the behaviors and. Uh, um, now we know we are dealing COVID-19. This is the most uh, serious and the leading cause of death uh, this year. But uh, if, if we look beyond this year, you know, there are a lot of other leading cause of deaths in, in the United States that we need to address. And actually, uh, if you look at the uh, cause of leading cause of deaths, a lot of cause of deaths are uh, modifiable um, through behaviors. So for example, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. But if you look at the, um, the cause of you know, the, 
the, the risk factors for um, heart disease, a lot of risk factors are modifiable. You know, they, they, they can be modified through, behave, through um, promoting healthy behaviors. So um, information definitely can play an important role here to modify um, people's behaviors and to promote you know, more healthy, uh, health, healthy uh, individuals and healthy society um, down the road. Well, that seems like a good place for us to wrap this up. I'd like to thank both of you uh, for what's truly been an enlightening conversation today um, and information that I think all of us uh, should be paying attention to, uh, not just with the coronavirus, but, you know, for, for our health as we make informed and wise decisions, hopefully. So thanks so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I'd like to once again thank my guests, Xin Yi Chow and Ernest Lai. The work they and their colleagues in the Department of Economics are doing is generating fascinating new insights, knowledge, and ideas for education in the field of economics. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Lehigh Business. This is Jack Croft, your host. Thanks again for listening.